welcome to Live, Laugh, Talk. I'm your host, James Graham, and it's such a privilege to be in your ear. In this episode, we will begin with the topic entitled, How to Deal with the Loss of a Pet. Then we will transition to our segment, How Did We Get Here?, followed by our hobbies and special interest section, and then conclude with our sunflower myth. Do you have something that you would like to share? Maybe it's a show idea, or maybe it's an issue you'd like to discuss. Please email us at admin, livelaughtalk.com. That's admin at livelaughtalk.com. In addition, if you're listening on Spotify, you can add a voice memo, and we can get those messages as well. In addition, you can leave comments and participate in our poll. Also, wherever you listen to the podcast, please follow us. We want to do that so that you're notified of the new episodes when they're released. The topic that we will begin with today is entitled, How to Heal from the Loss of a Pet. Darkness, loneliness, pain. These are three words that, though strong, fail to describe the loss of a pet. To say it is like losing a family member still doesn't seem to sum up the loss. Why do we? allow ourselves to get so close to creatures with lifespans that's only a percentage of the length of ours. Maybe because we just can't help ourselves. Anatole France stated, until one has loved an animal, a part of one's soul remains unawakened. There is truth to that statement. We have a cell hormone, or trait that draws us close to creatures that we named, or some have birth certificates and clothes. Thus, the loss is deep, and it pierces the soul. Sadly, there are few words of comfort. Friends and family may try, but their words come out empty. You may hear words like, so why don't you get another one? My response to that is, well, I didn't lose my Chevrolet. What I lost had a personality. It had feelings. It had my heart. Another just does not replace the pain. I've lost many pets in my lifetime. If you live long enough, you get to the point in life that you bury people and pets you've loved. The last two I lost were the hardest. Maybe because they were the closest in time. They were the last two. But I think it's deeper than that. One, because she was so young. She was a year old and died on a holiday. Now, that day comes around and it's a constant reminder. The other, because he had the most human qualities I've ever seen in a dog. 
I had gotten him when I was going through one of the most difficult times in my life. And I don't know which one of us rescued the other. He passed six months before my mother, which was devastating, to say the least. I eventually wrote this in my journal. When you, my beautiful baby boy, left me, I concealed my words around others because I felt they wouldn't understand. I couldn't work. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. My Princeton, you are so young, eight years old, and died from multiple idiopathic seizures, which led to heart arrest. Losing you was the most painful thing in my life. I miss you. And time has not healed the hole in my heart. I miss the pitter-patter of your little feet. I was with you through your 18 continuous seizures while in the emergency room. And my baby, you are not alone. Please know that. But the pain I have intensified. I now have the nightmares of seeing you go in a painful way that you frankly did not deserve. The pain of watching you leave me has been overwhelming, too. It even removes all hope of me ever healing, as it replays in my memory every day. I love you beyond words. It's said that time heals all wounds. And if that's the case, then the deeper the wound, the more time it will take. For those of you who have had to bury your non-homo sapien loved one. You know the pain just all too well. Coping with the loss of a pet, it can be challenging. I'm here to tell you. There are steps that helps with the grieving process. One is to allow yourself to grieve. It's natural to feel sadness, anger, even guilt when you lose a beloved pet. So we have to give ourselves permission to grieve and express our emotions. Others just really may not understand. Those who don't have that love for animals, they'll, they'll never get it. And we can't make them. But we have to give ourselves that time. Create a memorial. Consider creating a, a memorial tribute to your pet. Me, I have mine, uh, their, their footprints in a little block, a little paw print. Also, Princeton have his ashes and jewelry. But you can have a photo album. I have many thousands of pictures of my pets. I've put them in digital scrapbooks. You can even plant a tree in their honor. I've never done that, but that's wise advice. We can reach out for support. Talk to friends and family who understand our bond with our pet. And sometimes sharing your feelings can be very therapeutic. That's why I'm doing this podcast right now. It's therapeutic for me, but I'm hoping that it will also be therapeutic for someone else who's out there listening. We can join a support group. There are online and in-person support groups for pet loss where you can Connect with others who are going through similar experiences. We have to remember to eat well, 
get enough sleep, engage in activities that brings us comfort and joy. Because if we take care of our physical and emotional well-being, that's going to be essential during this most difficult time. Keep small mementos of the items that remind you of your pet, like their collar or maybe a favorite toy of theirs. Some people find it comforting to volunteer at animal shelters or donate to pet-related charities in memory of their pets. Again, we have to give ourselves time. It's a process. We have to be patient with ourselves. Allow to heal at our own pace. Even seeking professional help. If it's overwhelming, that's wise advice. And maybe in time, when you're ready, you can think about adopting another pet. Of course, it won't replace your your lost loved one, but it can help fill the void, bring new joy into your life because each pet has a different personality. We have to remember that each one of us will grieve differently. There's no right or wrong way to cope with a loss, but our feelings are valid. And it's okay to mourn in our own way. I give this episode as a gift to those who hurt. To know that you are not alone. Many of us know that pain and have experienced it more than we wish to share. But as mentioned earlier, this episode is also a gift to myself. Hopefully all of this will prove to heal me as well while I share my thoughts with you. With the loss of Princeton that I mentioned, the pitter-patter of little feet triple. I now have three Yorkies named after him. They're all peeing a ton. I have Paddington, Peyton, and Pennington, all named peeing a ton after their brother Princeton. The same young lady who made the show swag you can buy on Etsy painted the picture you can see of him on this episode's artwork. See, that's all how I cope. Yet, Tears fell every minute of this recording. I miss him so. And I'm sure you in the listening audience, you've had this pain as well. Although I can attest to the pain, I can also attest to the power of prayer, along with the steps given in this segment. All of these things will help us cope. And one day, we have a shortage in teachers in this country. Even more of a shortage in those who are qualified to be educated. This has led to a generalized decline in literacy the faltering international performance of American students, and inability to recruit enough qualified college graduates into the teaching profession, a lack of trained and able substitutes to fill teacher shortages, unequal access to educational resources, 
inadequate funding for schools, stagnant compensation for teachers, heavier workloads, declining prestige, and deteriorating faculty morale. Nine-year-old students earlier this year revealed the largest average score decline in reading since 1990 and the first ever score decline in mathematics. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, in the latest comparison of fourth grade reading ability, the United States ranked below 15 countries, including Russia, Ireland, Poland, and Bulgaria. Now, we as a nation have to stop and think about this because when it comes to ranking us against other nations, if this was a sport, people would be fighting. If this was a, a basketball game and we were behind Russia, Ireland, Poland, or Bulgaria, or we were figure skating, these coaches wouldn't be around anymore. But since it's education, since it's our teachers that's teaching these students and they're ranking well below other nations, nobody seems to care as much. Nobody's getting fired over this. See, as Americans, we don't rank education as high as we do athletics. If we did, there would be academic scholarships that match those of the athletes. There would be money given to those who are academically inclined. Whereas there's not. That goes to the athletes because that's what bring money into the schools. That's what put people on television. That's what gets us watching on Sunday. So the importance of academics is lost. Dora Santoro, a professor, professor of education, stated regarding the morale of public school teachers that teachers are not only burnt out and undercompensated, they are also demoralized. They're being asked to do things in the name of teaching that they believe are miseducational and harmful to students and the profession. What made this work good for them is no longer accessible. That is why we are hearing so many refrains of I'm not leaving the profession my profession has left me. And we see such in states like Florida, where teachers are being told what to teach. They've lost the autonomy of the classroom. And they're being told what to teach because there's a growing regime that only wants certain things taught, or they want things taught the way they would like to hear it. And let's not hide behind it. A lot of this has to do with sexuality. And much, much, much of this has to do with racism. So teachers can't teach what actually happened on slave ships. They're being taught or told to teach that slavery was a way of gaining skill. Well, any teacher that is worth their, their salt knows better than that. But see, they don't have the autonomy they once had. They can't teach their classroom 
just frankly the truth. Because if slavery was about skills, why weren't people paid? Why weren't they solicited and brought over to the country to help build and given financial aid? But we're not going to get into all of that. Our goal, not at this time anyway, but our goal is to talk about why we have a lack of teachers. And that's one of the reasons. It's listed by New York Statistics that Reasons as such that we've just discussed is a reason why we're not seeing young people looking to go to college and become educators. They're not paid enough. They're demoralized. And they can't teach truths. We find that there are at least 36,000 vacant positions along with at least 163,000 Positions being held by underqualified teachers. Both of which are conservative estimates of the extent of teacher shortages nationally, and especially in southern states like Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, where there's very high vacancies. These declines in the numbers of qualified teachers take place in an environment of stagnant or declining economic incentives. Wages are essentially unchanged in the last 20 years after adjusting for inflation. Teachers have about the same number of students, but teacher accountability reforms have increased the demands on their positions. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, the number of students graduating from college with bachelor degrees in education fell from 176,300 in 1970 to 85,058 in 2020. In a study of teachers' salaries, a research associate at the Economic Policy Institute found a growing gap between the pay of all college graduates and teacher salaries from 1979 to 2022, with a sharp increase in the differential since 2010. In 1979, the average teacher weekly salary was about 23% less than other college graduates. By 2010, teachers made 25% less than other college graduates. And by 2022, teachers made 32.9% less than what other graduates made. Now let's look at that in real numbers. If an average graduate made $2,009 a week, a teacher was making $1,348 a week. They got the same education. They're not getting the same pay. And these gaps play a significant role in determining the quality of teachers. Well, why would that be? Well, because one who is qualified, who's getting the grades, who's above average in school, is not even thinking about making less money 
teaching individual than he could if he was out doing something else. As a matter of fact, the morale of teachers has gone down as a result. The prestige of the occupation. I remember my father telling me that growing up, when he was growing up, they looked up to teachers. There was nobody else that was able to do the things that teachers were able to do. They had nice cars, nice clothes, nice houses. And this was at a time when there were Jim Crow laws. But these individuals were able to take care of themselves in a nice way. So people thought about going to school and becoming an educator. Well, I want to be like that person over there. But now, if you tell somebody that you're going to educate, you're becoming a teacher, they look at you with confusion. As a matter of fact, they will look at you and even say, well, why are you doing that? Nobody looks at a teacher anymore as a job of prestige. They look at it and even say certain things that, well, those that can't teach what a, a sad world we live in. Pitiful. Now, when we think about the teacher's cognitive skills, well, they differ widely among nations. And that these differences matter greatly for students' success in school. If the teacher is sharp, well, then their students will be sharp. So, how then can we raise teacher skill level in the United States? Well, we have to start by raising teacher pay to make it as attractive to college graduates as a high skill job would be in other fields. A New York statistic of track trends states on four interrelated constructs, those four constructs being professional prestige that we mentioned earlier, Interest among students, number two. Three, preparation for entry. And four, job satisfaction for the last 50 years has seen a rapid decline. Actually, in the 70s, it was more rapid than at any time before that. Then there was a, a swift rise in the 80s, relative stability for two decades, and Right now, we're seeing a sustained drop in those four things. That's professional prestige of our teachers, interest among students, preparation for entry, and job satisfaction. Right now, the current state of the teaching profession, those four interrelated constructs, is at or near its lowest levels in 50 Perceptions of teacher prestige, like we talked about before, has fallen between 20% and 47% in the last decade to be at or near the lowest levels recorded over the last half century. Interest in the teaching profession among high school seniors and college freshmen has fallen 50% since the 90s and 38% since 2010 reaching the lowest level in the last 
50 years as well. The number of new entrants into the profession has fallen by roughly one-third over the last decade, and the proportion of college graduates that go into teaching is at a 50-year low. What about job satisfaction? It's also at the lowest level in five decades. With the percentage of teachers who feel the stress of their job is worth it, dropping from 81% to almost half at 42% in just the last 15 years. Yes, the combination of these factors, declining prestige, lower pay than other professions that require a college education, increased workloads, and political and ideological pressures is creating both intended and unintended consequences for teacher accountability reform, mandating tougher licensing rules, tougher evaluations, and tougher skill testing. But yet we've got the tougher test going, but we don't have the most educated instructors. So what are we seeing happen? Well, with the economic incentives, salary structure, and work-life pressures, the public education school system has created a climate in which contemporary education reforms have perverse and unintended consequences that can worsen rather than alleviate the problems facing school systems. If we continue to see this trend, well, we won't have to worry about reformers because we won't have many teachers to reform. We won't have schools. This is a, a major issue. Instead of giving money to other professions, and I'm not saying that we should take money out of anybody's checkbook, but we need to look at our educators. Without our educators, what are we as a nation? What are we as a people? We can't find ourselves being completely ignorant because we refuse to pay those to educate our young. When we see such staggering statistics and we sit here and we see that we have a complete lack of qualified teachers, we have totally ripped away the prestige of the teaching profession. In addition, we have decided that we're going to give the lowest amount of money to our school teachers. Some make less than our sanitation departments. We have to turn and ask ourselves, how do we get here? Our special interest and hobby for this segment is drone flying. Yes, drones are a fun hobby for people looking to spend more time outside, those who enjoy technology, and also for those who enjoy photography as well. 
Whether you're interested in flying drones for recreational purposes, such as capturing aerial photos, videos, or you want to use them for more practical applications, such as mapping or surveying, there is a drone that can meet your standards. And many people enjoy the excitement and challenge of flying drones. The hobby can be a great way to spend time outdoors and explore new areas. I have to, to admit that my first drone was given to me. A friend of mine found it at a garage sale and said, hey, have this. He didn't want anything to do with it. So I looked at it. I was like, oh, that seems pretty cool. And it is. It's a lot of fun. So what do we presently use our drones for? Well, some people, like we mentioned earlier, aerial photography, a videography, delivery, some companies. Racing, disaster relief, surveillance, real estate marketing, construction and surveying, mapping out wildfires, also farm surveying and recreation. Now, where did these drones come from? Well, the U.S. military began experimenting with them back in the 30s with radio-controlled airplanes. But they proved to be too expensive and unpractical for military purposes. But as technology improved, like with anything else, when the technology improves, the price comes down. Well, militaries around the world were able to improve each model up to when we got into the 90s when drones became a practical and precise military tool. Now, what are some different drones that's out there? And if you're shopping for one, what should you look for? Well, there's various rotor styles. There's multi-rotor drones, and they're, you know, good for both professional and recreational use. Multi-rotor drones are the most common drones on the market, and they're used for photography, like we mentioned, videography, surveillance, racing, and also other things. Then we have the fixed-wing drones. Now, fixed-wing drones are different from multi-rotor drones in that they utilize a wing-style body, similar to that of an airplane. They are remote-controlled and battery-operated with a typical operating time of several hours. Fixed-wing drones are typically used for commercial purposes, like surveillance, mapping. Single-rotor drones look very similar to helicopters. Now, these drones typically are gas-powered and require more skill and knowledge to operate than multi-rotor drones. And then there's the fixed-wing hybrid drones, utilizing the best features from multi-rotor and fixed-wing styles. Now, these are the drones that Amazon has been testing and we hear using for their prime air delivery service. They're very, very expensive, but they're just as cool as they are expensive. Now, if you go online and you begin to look at some of these drones, you'll be able to see the difference in the styles. You'll also be able to see the difference in price. And you can get ones that can work with your smartphone apps and allow you to easily control and, and fly the drone. And it's suggested that you start off small. Don't go out there and get the most expensive drone that you can find. Start off with something 
read a little research, get some reviews, and start off with something that can be fun, but maybe smaller and more affordable so that you can get the feel for the hobby. And then gradually work your way up to more advanced and expensive drones. Now we should mention that there are some laws out there. You can't just randomly pick up your drone and start flying it around and taking pictures of certain areas. These laws are constantly evolving and vary greatly depending on your location. And you can get a full list of the laws by your specific location. There's FAA rules out there that you can look up and see just what you should do. And some of these rules require that you actually register your drone. If you're going to be making money, that's also a part that you want to learn about there too. There's laws that govern this, and it has to be. Because imagine if people just had drones flying overhead with cameras attached. What it would do to privacy. So, aside from that, get out there. Look online. Look at the different styles of drones. Pick out one that works with you and your budget. Go grab it. Step outside. Make sure that you follow the local laws. Get out there and fly that drone. Have a little fun. And for some, they've been able to monetize it. But for those of us who just like flying the little thing around, it's quite a fun hobby. So let's have a little bit of fun and think about how we can make a drone a hobby that we take advantage of. Our sunflower message it's from Daya Nandan, and it's entitled, Experiences in Life. Your experiences in life inevitably ends up shaping you. Your character, mindset, attitude, as well as your point of view. It's your choice whether to let it shape you into a stronger person or to let it bitter and break you, causing your negativity to worsen. A wiser you or a bitter, more broken you, the outcome is your choice. For the person you become depends on your mindset and your heart's choice. So choose your battles wisely and direct yourself to positive experiences in life. For too many negative experiences will stab your self-esteem with a knife. Just as too many breakups might make you lose faith in love or too many setbacks might make you lose faith in the plan of God above. Experiences will change your outlook in this window of life that you live, ranging from an abusive person to a generous individual that loves to give. So try to get things right the first time you attempt anything. Do your research, be analytical, and hardworking at almost everything. Be it attempts in love presentations, working tasks, or battles in war. Do your best to succeed that depression does not walk you out the door. You will experience failure at some point, but keep it at a minimal degree and learn from the mistakes that are made. 
That is the magical key. Have a positive mindset and carefully plan each attempt at life's task so that you can succeed often in the many demands that life asks. On Cash App, dollar sign Live Laugh Talk, and on Twitter at Live Laugh Talk, or also on Spotify, you can just press the donate button to support our podcast. Also remember to get your swag. Go online at Etsy.com. Type in, how do we get here? And you will see beautiful t-shirts, coffee mugs, tote bags, and more on the way. Also remember to give us the highest rating on your podcast platform. And tell your friends, family, peers about us. That's the way we grow. And we need you. This is James and George's baby boy signing off. And as you know, I can't wait to talk with you again soon.